Hi, this is Liz Lang from Greenfield, Indiana, and you're listening to the sound of my 20-pound Siamese cat who is demanding his dinner. This podcast was recorded at 2.08 p.m. Eastern Time on Thursday, December 16th. Things may have changed by the time you hear this, but my cat will have been fed. Okay, here's the show. Wow. So that was a hungry cat and not a baby? <laughs> For a second, I also thought it was a baby there at the very beginning. 20 pounds, that's like baby-sized. That's a big baby. <laughs> that's a big baby. <laughs> hey there, it's the NPR Politics Podcast. I'm Asma Khalid. I cover the White House. I'm Juana Summers. I cover politics and racial justice. And I'm Domenico Montanaro, senior political editor and correspondent. To date this year, more than 42,000 people have died from gun violence in the United States. That's according to a tally by the nonprofit group Gun Violence Archive. Last year, the final tally topped 45,000. That was the highest number in decades. The gun control group Every Town for Gun Safety has launched this new program to train people who've been personally impacted by the violence to run for political office. And Juana, I know that you have been doing some reporting on what they are doing. Uh, but before we get into the details, I do think it's worthwhile to talk a little bit about what gun violence actually looks like here in the United States. I mean, mass shootings obviously get a lot of attention in the news but they represent actually a tiny slice of the total number of people who die from guns. Yeah, that's right. And I think it's important to just call that out. And especially in a week like this, where a lot of us have been thinking about the ninth anniversary of that horrific shooting at Sandy Hook Elementary School. Mm. Um, These shootings do make headlines and they should, but the overwhelming majority of deaths by gun violence of people who are hurt by gun violence, those stories, they, they never make headlines. They happen quite far from the national spotlight. They're happening in communities, um, urban and small towns. They're happening in people's homes, in their places of work. And many of those we just, we frankly never hear about. So I wanted to get back to the program that we mentioned at the outset that every town has launched. My understanding is it is trying to essentially recruit and train people to run for office. I get that, but what exactly are they doing and how are they attempting to train folks to do this? Yeah, so first, for people who don't know what Everytown is, this is one of the big gun control groups that is backed by the billionaire Mike Bloomberg, who was the former mayor of New York City, who's also run for president. The group put $55 million behind its elections in 2020. And this program is new. It launched earlier this year, and its first class of would-be candidates is going to graduate in January of 2022. And when I talked to Shannon Watts, who's the head of Moms Demand Action, an arm of Everytown, she told me essentially that the goal is is to give volunteers who have worked with them on the cause of ending gun violence and reforming the nation's gun laws, who have been personally impacted, kind of the nuts and bolts of what it looks like to run for office. Many of them may not know, you know, for example, how to start up a campaign, how to know what it takes for that office, how to fundraise if you're thinking about running. So they want to give them that. But they also want to provide them with something else really important. Uh, They told me there's a big mentorship component to this program. So it's connecting them with people who have already run for office who can help them out. One person that is mentoring them is Congresswoman Lucy McBath of Georgia. And if you remember, She herself was a Moms Demand Action volunteer. She became an activist after her son Jordan was fatally shot in 2012. If we won, then I was going to do everything in my power in Washington to elevate this issue in a way that no one in Congress would be able to turn their back on all the countless numbers of people that keep 
dying in this country every single day. I know why I am there. Juana, hmm. how wide is this program? How many how many people did you see kind of go through uh, this this effort from every town? Yeah, so that's a great question. There are more than 100 people who are participating in the program this year. Some of them are running for office already. Some of them are thinking about it. And some of them are people who want to work on campaigns or who want to one day work on campaigns. So when you mentioned that there's over 100 people in this training program, um, you know, I, I would imagine that running for Congress and understanding how to do that at a national level is extremely is extremely tough and complicated. Um, Mm -hmm. So are they really focused on federal races or is this more about state and local races? You know, they're looking up and down the board here. There's not one specific office they're targeting. Some of the candidates who are participating in this program that that, that I talked to are not running for Congress. In fact, one of the candidates that I spoke to is a woman named Mia Levis Porter, who is running for an assembly seat in the Los Angeles area in California. And it wasn't until uh, actually three years ago that I started sharing my story. And once I did, and I saw the power of how it could inspire others to come forward and share their experiences and build a community of survivors um, and how it had legislative power, it could move our electeds to take action So one of the things that Levis Porter told me when we talked about this program is that she appreciated having a community of other people who are impacted by gun violence. She herself is a survivor of gun violence. Her brother um, died by suicide with a gun after battling mental health issues for some time. And she said there was power in having people who were vocalizing the same experience that she had had and who were channeling that into some sort of civic duty. You know, hearing what you're describing, Juana, it feels a little bit to me like deja vu, right? I covered the 2018 midterms, and I remember doing some reporting at that time that found that gun control was a really big motivating force on the Democratic side. It became more and more of an issue for suburban women. And it was the first election cycle, I believe, to my knowledge, at least in any recent history, where gun control groups outspent gun rights groups, right? Meaning groups like the NRA. And that was really unusual. And it felt like in that moment, Democrats were really excited about the potential of making some changes in Congress, new laws, and then none of that happened. And Domenico, I don't know what you think. I know you followed a lot of races, Mm -hmm. but it does feel like the pendulum shifted, I recall hearing in 2018. But yet now what Juan is describing feels like folks are just trying to move that a little bit further, the conversation but nothing really substantively seemed to have changed after 2018. Well, yeah, I mean, you got to look at the levers of power and who's in control of those things, uh, especially 2018. You know, Democrats took over the House, but, you know, you need 60 votes in the Senate to be able to pass meaningful legislation. You know, if you're thinking about whether Democrats, well, hey, they control the Senate right now, why can't they get things done like, you know, passing gun restrictions or passing a voting rights bill um, or any other number of things? Remember, if Democrats are going to go with just 50 votes with the vice president breaking a tie, uh, they're going to need to sell the Senate parliamentarian on all of these things being related to the budget. So it's much easier to get things done uh, and qualified that are related to money, related to the things that the government spends money on, as opposed to social issue things, which are much more difficult to create this kind of change without getting rid of the filibuster. All right, well, let's take a quick break and we'll have more in just a second. 
Support for NPR and the following message come from ExxonMobil. As part of its ongoing commitment to help address climate change, ExxonMobil is increasing the efficiency of its operations and advancing low-carbon technologies that can be deployed at scale. With that and more, it expects to reduce its absolute upstream greenhouse gas emissions by an estimated 30% by 2025. Learn more at exxonmobil.com solutions. And we're back. And one, one question I have about congressional legislation, you know, we've been saying that it's just really difficult for Democrats to pass any legislation given the numbers they have in Congress. But I guess beyond whether or not they can pass anything, what kind of legislation do folks want to stem gun violence? Are there kind of common themes that you've been hearing from any of the people going through this training program? Yeah, that's such a great question. It's a question that I put to both people involved with the training program and other candidates that I talked to. You know, I asked them, what does Washington get wrong about these issues? And all of them kind of said that the current federal conversation around gun violence sort of misses the point. It talks about it in kind of an old way. And one of the candidates I had a conversation about this with is Kena Collins. She is making a progressive challenge to Illinois Congressman Danny Davis. It's a district that includes part of the city of Chicago, where she's been a gun violence prevention advocate for some time now. And she told me that the entire reason that she is running for Congress, as opposed to some other office is because this conversation needs an intersectional lens. I'm running because if we're talking about the gun violence prevention movement, it needs to be victim-centered, survivor-led, and offender-sensitive. And some people say, well, what does offender-sensitive mean? That means that in places like Chicago, where we experience everyday gun violence, the shooters live right next door to um, the victims. And so My whole job is to make sure that I'm bringing an intersectional approach to the conversation. It's to strike at the root causes of these issues, which are poverty and a lot of other issues that lead to everyday gun violence and lack of access to health care. And one thing that really stuck with me that Collins told me in our conversation, she told me the story about a murder that she witnessed when she was quite young, where she knew both the victim and the shooter. And what she said to me about that shooting was, and I'm paraphrasing her here, is that the bullet was flying before anyone ever pulled the trigger in that killing. And she said the bullets are things like when public schools are shut down in neighborhoods, when there's lead in drinking water, when people are living in a food desert and they're not making enough money to get by and feed their families. She said those things are all contributing factors. So just talking about things like background checks and banning assault weapons, that that's simply not enough to her mind. And that's one of the things that has mobilized her to run. You know, I think it's a really good reminder of the kind of gun violence that takes place every day and in which mm-hmm. communities, because the thing, I think, Juana, as you've mentioned, that gets so much attention nationwide is when there are mass shootings. And then what we see in poll numbers is that people sort of expand uh, whether or not they're in favor of gun restrictions right after, uh, you know, one of these events, but then sort of reduce their their likelihood to be in favor of those things after. But for a lot of people in different communities, this is a daily occurrence. And, you know, just looking at some of the research on this, some of the survey research, the Pew Research Center did a survey earlier this year, back in September, where they asked people about how big a problem uh, guns are. And 48% of people said that gun violence is a very big problem, but there were huge divides along 
race, and place. Mm -hmm. So when I say that, I mean 82% of African Americans said that it's a very big problem when only 39% of whites did. Uh, And when you look at place, two-thirds of people who live in urban environments say that gun violence is a very big problem when just a third of people who live in rural areas do. I have one last question, Juana. I don't know if you know the answer to it, so Mm -hmm. maybe I'll just throw it out here. Yeah. You know, we were mentioning, you know, I was mentioning that during the 2018 election cycle, gun control groups outspent the the gun rights groups, groups like the, the National Rifle Association, and that that was pretty unusual. Do you have a sense of where the money is at at all this cycle? I know it's quite early in the campaign cycle, but just, I mean, it's going to be a tough cycle for some of these left-leaning candidates to run, and the congressional map just isn't great for them this year. Yeah, I think that's right. The congressional map isn't great for them. Um, but I don't have a sense of what the money looks like now. I mean, I, these groups are saying that they plan to field more candidates and spend more money towards making sure their candidates are elected. And one of the things that Shannon Watts at Moms Demand Action told me is the reason why this is so important is because there have been candidates sitting in these seats for so long that have continued to look at this issue that is quite deadly and they've refused to do anything that has changed the outcomes for so many people in this country. So it's spending that I'm going to be watching really closely as we continue to report. Yeah, and for as many issues as the NRA has had, they've spent more than $4 million this cycle um, already. So, you know, I think that this is going to continue to be an issue that we see over and over again. And, you know, I do think, though, we need to understand here and remember that, you know, not only is the right to bear arms in the Constitution and that that's made it difficult uh, for pro-gun restrictions groups to get uh, more of these uh, restrictions uh, to be upheld in courts, especially with a conservative-leaning uh, court, a Supreme Court now. Um, but that same Pew Research Center poll that I cited said that four in ten people say they live in a household with a gun. You know, I think what we need to understand is that guns really are a singular cultural issue for a lot of voters in this country. It's really an emblem of where they stand culturally, um, and it's one of those logo items. You know, you think about abortion, guns religion. These are the kinds of issues that the Republican Party, that conservatives have really built a cultural uh, you know, slogan around. All right. Well, let us leave it there for today. I'm Asma Khalid. I cover the White House. I'm Juana Summers. I cover politics and racial justice. And I'm Domenico Montanaro, senior political editor and correspondent. And thank you for listening to the NPR Politics Podcast. 